Whether you agree with it or not, Uncle Tom's Cabin was pivotal in helping many people see the atrocities of slavery, particularly chattel slavery, the, West Af- the results of the West African slave trade in the 1700s, 1800s in America. Its author, Harriet Beecher Stowe, how many have read that, by the way? Oh, a lot of people. Its author, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Explain why she wrote the book. She said, because as a woman, as a mother, I was oppressed and brokenhearted with the sorrows and injustice I saw. Because as a Christian, I felt the dishonor to Christianity. Because as a lover of my country, I trembled at the coming day of wrath. I trembled at the coming day of wrath. That book was published in 1851. Frederick Douglass was a former slave in Maryland, and he escaped up north to New York and Massachusetts. And he said this, and his own reviewing his own his own personal experience in slavery. He says, reviewing the work of white churches. He said, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize. The widest possible difference. So wide that to receive one, the one as good, pure and holy, is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slaveholding. Women whipping, cradle plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. Slavery is the state in which one person legally owns another or one person is excessively dependent on another person or thing. Now, this might be one of the most tricky texts I've ever preached for various reasons. So in unusual fashion, I'm going to extend the introduction just to give a few qualifiers before we get into the passage and what it means for us today. First, and this is an obvious statement, is that the Apostle Paul knows the Old Testament scriptures. He knows the Old Testament scriptures. He knows that Exodus 21 says this, that whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So, When we hear the word slavery in our text today in Ephesians 6, we are not meant to have in our minds the same kind of slavery that most of us are familiar with from history books, from movies, from conversations of the kind of brutal slavery that took place in America in the 1800s and the 1700s. Secondly, If you're more curious about Paul's understanding of slavery, there is a whole 
book of the Bible dedicated to understanding. It's the book of Philemon. It's a very little epistle. It's kind of toward the end of your, of your Bible. Philemon is a wealthy Christian. Onesimus was one of his slaves. Onesimus ran away from Philemon. And he ran to the Apostle Paul on one of Paul's missionary journeys. And Paul says that in order, he's writing to Philemon, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but for your good. He says, as a beloved brother, he treats, he treats, then he, he, sorry, he begins to talk of Onesimus, the slave, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ, as a child of God. And he appeals to Philemon on the base, on the basis of love. Okay. A third place to go to. So I've, I've told you to go to Exodus 21, the book of Philemon, and look at 1 Corinthians 7, 24, 27, at a later date. Maybe over lunch. And Paul says, basically, in 1 Corinthians 7, 24, 27, if you can gain your freedom as a slave, avail yourself of the opportunity. That means if you have an ability to be free of being a slave, then do it. He also reminds them, at the same time, as we'll see in our text, that no other condition matters compared to the condition of who you are in Christ, as being a bondservant of Christ. You see, the New Testament sees the reality of slavery. And by its practice, by its ethic, by what it's pointing to and building, it condemns it. But Paul knew he was writing into a culture. As we'll see in our text We'll understand more and more of that. So let me just be clear as I can be. What Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 6 is not the horrific and brutal form of slavery in American history known as chattel slavery. But while it was not that, the men and women in Ephesus and throughout the Roman Empire were not as free as we are today. If God could have instruction for how his people should live in that situation, certainly the words are able to speak into our freer society where we still have lines of authority and lines of submission. God's instruction for Christians here is how to act wisely as you work. As you work for the Lord. As you work for the Lord. He said earlier in Ephesians that I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And here he is telling us how to live as those under authority and as those in authority. It's estimated that about a third of the citizens of Ephesus or cities like Ephesus were slaves at the time. A third of the population. The flow of this passage makes sense here because slaves were in a way considered part of the family. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, we looked at Ephesians 5, the end of it, where we saw how husbands and wives, how they interact with each other and uh, how husbands exercise their Christ-like servant-hearted authority and how wives respect and submit to their husbands as they submit to Christ. And then we saw last week how Fathers exercise their authority, and more general moms and dads, and then how children obey their parents in the Lord. And then we see an extension now to 
those who are called bondservants or slaves. In this text, Paul does not advocate for the system of slavery in the same way that he does never advocate for the brutality of the Roman government. But here he is providing instructions for Christian masters and slaves and how they ought to relate to each other as a family of God and as Christians who are all under their master, Jesus Christ. I was one of the longest intros I've ever given in my life. And I think I could still keep going. Uh, in our text today, we're going to see uh, three different ways to relate to authority. Our text is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. That's found on page what of your pew Bible? Who has their pew Bible open? Mike, you got it? What is that? Mike's course says it's 979, page 979 of your pew Bible. Thank you, Mike. Let's read Ephesians 6, 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Heavenly Father, there's no partiality with you. We're all under your good lordship. By the power of your spirit, help us to see that more clearly. Open the eyes of our heart to behold wonderful and beautiful truths in your word. Change us. Conform us into the image of Christ more and more. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. First, we see instructions for those under earthly authority. Instructions for those under earthly authority. Verses 5 to 8. So Paul can write these words to slaves about their conduct toward their master. Then those of us who are not slaves, which I imagine most of us in this room, but employees who have bosses are able to apply the same ethic in our workplace. There are at least three manners of working that the Lord is calling all Christians to instill in their workplace as they particularly relate to their authority. Now, if you're a boss in this room, you probably have a boss over you. And if you don't have one boss over you, you have probably a board over you or something like that. So this really applies to everyone. And, and even if you are currently not working formally in a workplace, it applies to you because we're one church body. And this is a way you can encourage other Christians to relate to those who are over them. First, we see that those under earthly authority are to work respectfully. Work respectfully. Look at the the words right there, with fear and trembling. This is language that's usually reserved for God. The word fear here is the same word used for wives in chapter 5 that brackets that passage. And as I said a couple weeks ago, it's best to interpret that word in this context with respect. 
Um, certainly, God is not calling wives to fear their husbands uh, in the way that we use the word phobia today. Like the way that you're afraid, that one can be afraid of spiders or boogeymans or whatever. Because the very analogy that God gives is that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. So, the church is supposed to adore, love Christ, serve Christ. Because they see Christ as valuable, as trustworthy. And so here, it's not the kind of petrifying fear. It's, it means respect. And so this begs a question. Like, how do you treat your boss? Do you, in a sense, roll your eyes at the God, that the one that God has put over you? Do you grumble behind your boss's back? Well, brother and sister, consider what God says here. You are supposed to obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. I remember when I had a job at North Carolina State University, I had, um, I had a difficult boss. And uh, people, when I got there, I realized they complained about her subtly. And as time rolled on, instead of standing up and not joining in, I joined in the complaining. I was irritated at some of the tasks I was giving. I was, you know, made to shred piles of paper with a shredder that could take like three pieces at a time. It wasn't in the job description. And so I used things like that as, as you know, I probably have an ability. I have a right to complain because this is unjust. This is kind of probably what was going on in my head. And we had cubicles, and there was this quiet young lady who uh, one day, uh, who I barely talked to, but one day she sent me an email, and she put in passages like this. And she basically told me as a Christian that I shouldn't be gossiping. Now, mind you, I was in my third year of seminary. <laughs> I thought about this big because I couldn't say anything because she's using the word of God, and she was exactly right. No matter how I justified it in my head, God put me in this position under this authority. I was not being asked to sin. I was not being abused by anyone's power. But I was being a complaining employee, a gossipy employee, not magnifying the goodness of Christ. I was not honoring my boss. And the reason I wasn't honoring my boss was because I wasn't honoring Christ. I did not see Christ beyond my boss. And I contributed to a culture of gossip, which didn't benefit anyone. I was not showing respect to my boss. I did not treat her with fear and trembling. Again, she wasn't asking me to sin. She wasn't causing me to sin. And I just lost sight of who my Lord was and what my Lord was causing me to do. And I, I justified it. And you know what corrected me? The word of God. A quiet kind-hearted saint who was overhearing my gossip and my complaints with another co-worker sitting in the cubicle beside me. Praise God for that. Well, secondly, he is calling us to work sincerely, work respectfully, and work sincerely. He says there in verse verse. Verse 6 there. Sorry, verses 5 and 6. 
He says there, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people please, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God. You see what he's doing there? You can do this because you know how good Christ is. You know how tethered you are to Christ, that you are under his lordship. So serve out of a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service. There should be no eye service in the workplace for Christians. People pleasing does no one any good. If you are a people pleaser, and we all have that tendency sometimes, depending in what environment we're around, you're caring more about the opinion of a person made by God than the actual maker himself. You see, it's ludicrous. It makes no sense. And yet people do it all the time. We're called to serve out of a joyful disposition from the heart, out of sincerity, knowing first and foremost, we're not serving our bosses, but we're serving our Lord. I remember also in college, or this, this time working in college and part of seminary, I worked at the RBC Arena, also known, now known as the PNC Arena, in Raleigh, North Carolina, where the Carolina Hurricanes hockey team plays and the North Carolina State Wolfpack basketball team plays. Um, several of my friends got this job. We would wait tables before the game started and we would serve. We started out service servant assistance and some of us made it all the way to waiter. And we would, we would serve people before the game. It was a great gig because then you could go watch the game for free because you're already in the arena. It was awesome. But as poor college students, we also like to eat some of the untouched food. I know it sounds ridiculous, especially in the age of COVID, right? But we would do it, especially with eye kids that would touch like one chicken finger at when there was like 15 there. One thing that we really liked doing was eating dessert off the dessert tray. But the thing with dessert tray is that the chef didn't want to keep making that tray for the next game. So there could be a game the next day. He wanted to use that same tray because they're not going to eat the desserts off the tray. They're going to give them a fresh one. So my friends and I, though, we made a habit of waiting. It, was so, it sounds so petty, but they were good desserts. Waiting for everyone to clear out, and then we would go to town on those desserts. Now, our boss, our manager, Keith, eventually said, guys, stop doing that. We want to save those desserts. Well, Keith had a ton going on if you've ever worked in a restaurant. The manager has a thousand things going on. And so we knew that he didn't want us to, but we also knew that he had a bunch of stuff going on. So me and my friends, remind you, we're all Christians, and, and, and two or three of us were in seminary at the time, um, or headed to seminary. We would, behind Keith's back, eat desserts. And then when we'd hear him coming, we'd have a lookout person right there at the edge of the kitchen, and we'd be eating dessert, and we'd hear him come, Keith's coming, and then we'd get back to work. We are giving Keith eye service. And one of the favorite stories I have from that time is we were the guy named Dakarius. Dakarius also, he tagged along with us. He probably trusted the guys who were in seminary that, hey, if they do it, you know, why can't I do it? Well, one time Dakarius is eating. <laughs> it's a good cheesecake, guys. And all of a sudden, Keith comes a little bit quicker this time than usual. Dakarius takes the cheesecake in his hand. He puts it in his pocket. And we, hey, what's up, Keith? How's it going? Keith leaves. And we're like, the car, you just put the cheesecake in your pocket? Like, yeah. See how ridiculous eye surfaces? 
We do ridiculous things when we realize that we are not living for our heavenly master. When we give eye service to our bosses, we have false and ulterior motives. And those false and ulterior motives might fool an earthly boss. That's why we keep doing it. We don't get caught. But the Lord sees the heart. Many people know the difference between service rendered from the heart versus people-pleasing service. Church, we all people-please to some extent. However you do that, know that that is a tiresome life. It will eventually be found out a lot of times in this life, and if not in this life, in the life to come. Look to Christ and serve him out of a sincere heart and see him as your authority telling you to serve your earthly master out of a sincere heart. Don't weigh man's opinions more than God's opinions. Colossians 3.23 says, Work heartily as unto the Lord and not for man. Thirdly, third manner in which we are to work is work with confident joy. Work with confident joy. Look at verse 7. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether he is a bondservant or free. Any good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, regardless of his position, whether he is a free man or a bondservant. And if you're a slave in Ephesus at this time, if you're a slave in any time, in any era, what a sweet promise this must be. Slaves, in many cases, in the Roman Empire, were able to buy back their freedom. Much of slavery was even at first voluntary or due to some debt that needed to be paid off. But it was never a guarantee that they would be free. It's really sobering to read some of these stories that I've been reading this past week. So just imagine being a slave and never having the certainty that you'd be free. You'd be working and working and working for years and years. And you're not in ancient Israel, which had the, the year of Jubilee when they would let their, their slaves go free. The master has all the power. There's no legal contract binding you, no system of government that's going to stand up for you. Or maybe the master will say, okay, you've worked your tail off and you can go free, but your wife hasn't. Your kids haven't. I'm going to keep them. What a cruel system. What hardships, untold hardships there must be in that system. And to read this, imagine being a church member in Ephesus who is a slave. And to read these instructions from God. That God sees them and regardless of what happens in this life, he will reward any good done, even if an earthly master does not fairly compensate. How good, what confidence must grow in them that nothing is beyond the gaze of God. He sees all, he knows all. 
I don't know. Again, I doubt any of us are in a slave position right now. If you're having trouble serving in your workplace and you love Jesus, it might be that you're not taking Jesus at his word here. So just think about the last time you didn't, didn't, get rec- sorry, didn't get recognition for something that you did. Did you grumble in your heart? Did you complain to a coworker? If you're married, did you come home to your spouse and just, kind of, in a sense, gripe and, and, and lament? God's meant, God's purposes here is that when you don't get recognition or when you're mistreated, is to know that Jesus sees all. He will reward all in his time. And if you don't see it in this life, you certainly, without doubt, will get it when you get your inheritance that is kept for you in heaven. So we can serve with confident joy. Even when things are unfair, even when you have a a stack of papers this high that you're putting through a shredder that was made in 1985. What a sweet promise to those who have no way out of their slavery. What a sweet promise to an Indian in a lower caste system, in a lower part of a caste. God sees all, knows all. And he will vindicate one day. Matthew Henry says about this kind of service. He says, service performed with with conscience and from a regard for God, though it may be to unrighteous masters, will be accounted by Christ as service done to himself. That's why you can do it joyfully. You can look at someone in the eye and say, I'll do this because I'm not serving you. I'm serving Christ. And Christ tells me for this season of my life, I'm going to serve you. Not all of your earthly supervisors will be Christians. I imagine most of them aren't. But we still owe them respectful obedience as long as they do not demand us to sin or violate God's law or our conscience. This is God's design for us as Christians in the workplace. Praise God we live in such a free society. I don't know the average numbers of people switching jobs, but if you don't want to work somewhere, you can go somewhere else. It's not without its cost. It's not without being talked about maybe behind your back. It's not without maybe getting a a poor reference or no reference at all. Those things are painful and difficult. Brother and sister, just know that God sees every single trial you go through and he will vindicate you one day. Why does this perfect authority, Jesus Christ, call us to obey imperfect authority? I think, as Ephesians is pointing to, because a good will in the workplace, even under not imperfect authority, will magnify Christ. That's what this book is getting at. All things are done to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. Friends, it's hard if you're just jumping into this text and haven't been in the rest of Ephesians to understand what God is doing. But if you understand God's design, the mystery of Christ revealed, you'll more joyfully hear these words and be able to follow them in obedience to Christ. Well, secondly, we see that instructions to those in earthly authority. Just verse 9 here. 
Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. He now speaks directly to the masters of these slaves and reminds them that they too are slaves. He tells them that you have a master and that your bondservants have the same master as you. You see, in every society there are classes and distinctions. And here the apostle is speaking right into that. And he's saying there might be distinctions in this world. But you know in the world to come that you, those distinctions will not be there. And he even says that kingdom is already here and you are under the same master. You see, people in this world are impressed with you. If you are in the upper class or the middle class, they're generally less impressed if you're in the lower class. In India, it's which caste you're part of. It's vitally important to over a billion people. And in our society, those with the most money and popularity have usually the most power or influence over those with less money and popularity. That's certainly true in the system of slavery. If you've ever been in authority as a mother or a father, as an employer, as a babysitter, if you've ever exercised any kind of authority in your life, you know that threatening is some kind of temptation. If you do this, I'm going to do that. It seems to be effective in a lot of systems, in a lot of circumstances. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a temptation to do it. But that's not the kind of authority that God is calling those in authority to exercise. It should not be a, you should not lead out with a quid pro quo. Of course, there's room to hire people and to fire people. To let go of people, to warn people. But it shouldn't be a threatening, certainly not one of abuse. The Christ does not threaten those who are under his authority. And Christ shows no partiality. He sees all, he knows all, and he will judge all fairly. Consider how Christ came to that point. How did he become the judge? He lowered himself by becoming a servant. He did not exploit his authority or his power. Though he was God, instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of mankind. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a shameful cross. And as Philippians 2 says, For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So if you are in a place of authority, as a husband, as a father, as a mother, as a boss. God intends you to mainly exercise your authority by way of serving people. 
Masters ought to obey this command because God rewards impartially and he judges impartially. There's no partiality with God. What good news for the slaves sitting there just wanting to be free of this relationship that he or she is tied to. He says, give up your threatening, master. Get over yourself, person in authority. And I wonder if in Ephesus, when this epistle is being read, if it, if it kind of seemed outlandish. Because you're sitting there in a culture full of slavery. You're like, how do I get anything done? I got to threaten these people to get them anything done. And here are these instructions. Do not threaten those in your care. Maybe masters would be mocked because their servants would no longer comply with them. While their worldly peers considered, made more money, their businesses grew. Whatever the case may be, for Christians in authority, Christians under authority, the goal of this text is to point us all towards Jesus Christ and his authority. And that's our third and last point. All Christians are under Christ's authority. All Christians are under Christ's authority. You see, Christ is the supreme authority of every Christian. That is clearly what Paul is wanting the Christian church and all Christian churches to know. So look at your text again on Ephesians 6. Look at this repetition. Verse 5, as you would Christ. Verse 6, as bondservants of Christ. Verse 7, as to the Lord. Verse 8, he will receive back from the Lord. Verse 9, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Yes, there are lines of authority in this world, but we are all under the one high kingly rule of Jesus Christ. And in a very real sense, friends, we are all slaves to sin. Held captive by our own desires. Locked in by the prince of the power of the air of this world. And as chapter 1 verse 7 says in Ephesians, in him we have redemption through his blood. What kind of language is that? That's purchase language. We were held captive much like the Israelites were held captive in Egypt. We were enslaved to sin. And we liked our enslavement. We didn't know what it was like to be free. We served cruel master, a deceptive master, the father of lies, Satan himself. And it pleased us. But Christ came. He purchased you for himself by the sacrifice of his own body. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, became the sacrificial lamb. And he poured out his blood as complete Atonement, the complete offering. And all who come to him by faith alone will receive this grace and will no longer be slaves to sin, but will become slaves to Christ. And it's really good to be a slave to Jesus Christ. He is a good, benevolent, kind master. You see, in the Garden of Eden, the first humans were under perfect and good authority. God provided for them in every way. He sheltered them. 
He protected them. He fed them. He gave them one another as a gift. But then this peculiar problem of evil entered the scene. And they doubted God's good authority. And instead, they trusted the deceptive lives of an evil authority. And ever since then, ever since the fall of man, mankind has been choosing to either live under the authority of the one true God or to continue in their fallen state and live under the authority of the prince of the power of the air. And in a sense, friends, the whole Bible is pointing, is calling us to trust the good authority of God again. So you have Genesis 3.15, which promises that one day the seed of Eve will come and crush the power of the evil authority, Satan. And you have Psalm 2, where the nations, the people of this world, they plot, they conspire together. How can we tackle God and his authority and his anointed king? And God merely, he sits in the heavens, he laughs, he looks at the banality of evil. And he says, who are you to come up against my king who I've installed in heaven and on Mount Zion, my holy mountain? And then we see in 2 Samuel 7, this kingdom under this good authority will last forever. Being under this authority will bless all peoples and it will last forever. And as the text that Katie read earlier from Psalm, from 2 Samuel 23 says, it gives a little picture of what it's like to live under this authority. So, so just picture what it's like to live under America, which today, relatively speaking to the rest of the world, isn't that bad. Relatively speaking, for most of us. Second Samuel 23 says this. I'll read it again. In verse 2, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Christian, you're supposed to look forward to the day when you will be in the presence of Jesus. You will completely be able to trust his authority. There will not be any temptation to mistrust him. You'll be so happy to be under his reign. And in many ways, that is very possible right now. And you can even be in a hard work situation and God is calling you to trust his good authority. Because... Life goes beyond this life and on into the next. And that's what gives us encouragement when we consider the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, 18. Who has all authority been given to? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And so you're, if you're in Jesus this morning, trust him that all authority has been given to him. And now as Christians under his authority, Paul calls himself a bondservant. He says in several letters that he is a slave of Christ. And he wants us to know that we are Christ and all that we do is unto him. If you're not yet a Christian and you're in this room, I'm so glad that God has brought you here. I just have a question for you. What is guiding your life? What authority makes sense of your life? Or maybe you don't like the idea of being a servant. 
or a slave to someone, as the Bible says that we are now slaves of Christ. But what if you were bound to a perfect, wise, loving, kind, gentle, strong king who loves you so much that he would give his own life for you? Who has infinite wisdom from eternity's past? Who's always held authority and he's never misused his authority? Who does not scold you when you mess up? Who's always approachable even when you sin against him? Who's not weak, but is powerful and able to help you and protect you? Who guides you by the still waters and makes you lie down in green pastures? If you're not yet a Christian, that authority exists and his name is Jesus Christ. And I plead with you, come to Jesus today. Don't continue to live your life under some aimless authority, some other ruler of this world, or even your own authority. You see, Jesus never rebelled against his father. He never sins, and now he's calling us to trust in him with with obedience and faith. And it's a joyful blessing to be under his reign. Jesus makes sense of life. He gives us purpose. And he only has good for his children. Your own authority, how's that working out for you? Honestly, ask yourself the question. If you're not a Christian here, how is your living under your own authority working out for you? Is it trustworthy? Friend, even as a Christian, I can sometimes neglect and in a sense stiff stiff arm the authority of God. Like Derrick Henry, stiff arm. Clearly, that was not a helpful reference. Where is that? I'm, I'm Ken Barbic. I was thinking Josh Allen, the quarterback for the Bills, but I don't want to give him any credit for his stiff arm. Ken Barbic, we have a Buffalo Bills fan in our midst. It's distracting, Ken. You should have told me on all days today. Um, but in a in a sense, as a Christian, we even rebel against God's authority and his kindness. He calls us back each time. If you're not yet a Christian, I encourage you to consider the authority of Jesus Christ as good and worthy to give your life to. No other authority will treat you like this. and No other authority has the power to save you from your sins. I just read that when they found King Tut's tomb... King Tut reigned in 1300 BC in Egypt, and they found his tomb in the 1920s. And in his tomb was a scepter. And I just thought, how fitting it is for one of the most revered, famous rulers in the history of the world to be there in his tomb with his scepter. When the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, ascended on high, and sits in the judgment seats with his scepter. And will one day come back and rule powerfully. We can trust him, friends, because he did not stay in the tomb. And so when he tells us to obey in hard situations, he's trustworthy. He's never telling us to sin in our obedience. What a good, kind, and wise God. As we conclude here, friends, across the board, wherever the pure gospel is preached, wherever the pure gospel is believed, the status of those 
that the society deems lesser always is elevated. Women are always elevated and seen as equals whenever the pure gospel is preached and believed. The status of children is raised and children are not exploited when the pure gospel is preached. A society that has a pure gospel is able to liberate slaves. As history has shown, the Spirit uses the scriptures and Bible-believing churches to dismantle corrupt evil systems like slavery, just like William Wilberforce did in England, just like men like Frederick Douglass and Abraham, well, Frederick Douglass, and we don't know Abraham Lincoln if he's a Christian or not, um, did in America. Praise God that we have such a powerful master who values all human life and gives us instruction how to live and exist in imperfect human institutions and imperfect authorities while we wait for our perfect authority to fully reign. Friend, if you're in a hard situation authority, if it's abusive, if you're being pressured to sin, please come talk to one of the pastors. We'd love to sit with you and talk to you and give you wisdom. If it's hard, welcome to the club. Know that you have a heavenly reward waiting for you. Let's pray to our God. Oh God, we thank you that you are perfect authority. We thank you that it is liberating to be submissive to you. We thank you, God, that you never lead us astray. Oh God, we thank you that Christ is trustworthy. And we thank you that his seat of authority will never be moved. Not by any powers in this world. Oh Lord, we pray that we would remember this, that in life and death, that Christ is our hope. Encourage our souls, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.